this, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebranded Safety. Today is our last episode of the quarterly co-host with Crystal Danbury. Yeah, I know I can hear you all crying. Let's jump into the intro and then we'll get right into it. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviours. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing a stereotype. Brought to you by Risk Fluent. What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is the YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin. So if you're new here, hit that subscribe button and the bell and etc. etc. Today is the last episode of the quarterly co-host with Crystal Danbury, and we're talking about the structure of safety. So we're going to talk about quite a few things actually: the structure of the safety team, the structure of where safety sits within the organization, and really a lot of things, which is really quite important. We think that maybe structure is just, that's what it is, that's where we sit. Actually can have a lot of impact within the organization. So hope you enjoyed this conversation. Um, before we get into it, just a quick note from our sponsors. Rebounding Safety is sponsored by Paradigm Human Performance, who are human and organizational performance experts. They've got an amazing team that work all around the world, helping organizations and humans perform better together. If you're looking for high reliability uh, practices, you're looking for human organizational performance practices, Paradigm Human Performance is the place for you. And if you're not sure, go check out the Learning Organization webinar uh, on their website as well. Everything's linked in the description below. If you're sold and you want to call them straight away, phone number's below. If you want to email them, email's below as well. Thank you very much, Paradigm, for sponsoring the YouTube channel and podcast. Let's jump into my conversation with Crystal. All right, Crystal, welcome back. It's your last quarterly co-host. I know, I'm gutted. I know, right? <laughs> I bet you are. And, and it took a three episodes to apparently just sort out all the audio. So apologies to anyone that listens to this. I have no idea what went wrong there. We didn't realise till post-edit that we, I was like, my wife was editing it. She was like, do you know the audio shit? And I'm like, what, for Crystal? She's like, no, for both of you. I'm like, <gasps> what? Because mine's set up all perfect. So I, I don't know what happened there. So apologies for anyone listening uh, on that. But we've we've upgraded today. Hopefully it's fixed everything. Amazing. Why don't you give yourself an introduction in case anyone hasn't listened to the others and then summarise what we've covered in the last two, uh, the aim of what we're trying to talk about in, in all three and then what we're going to talk about today. Nice. Okay. Um, so make sure I hit all of those um, those agenda items. So one of them <laughs> is I am Crystal Danbury. Um, I am a really passionate 20-year veteran in the safety space and um, I have worked across um, nuclear, rail, logistics, transport, gaming, um, telecoms and our retail, and all of them really focusing on harm reduction and culture change. Um, I have absolutely loved these three podcasts and to cover for anyone that's missed the first two, um, as a collective, we were talking about the cornerstones of safety change. So we've covered in number one, psychological safety and what role that has to play in culture, authenticity and what that has to do um, with culture and how it, you know, it leans into that and enables culture change. And then today we will be talking about the safety team um, and really sort of jumping into what the traditional safety team looks like, how we think it's evolved um, and what we think is really important for the new age of safety in terms of your team makeup. So thank you for joining us. 
um and yeah we hope you enjoy awesome like a true podcast host you sounded like there so, uh, <laughs> you've uh, trained me yeah much better than me um <laughs> okay i'm gonna go in with with a hard question straight off the bat come where should safety sit in the organization oh god what a good hard first question um I think it's really, really difficult. I think one of the things that I would be most against or one that I would caution against, I would say, is when it sits directly in that operation. Um, If you have a really big organisation, I've seen such difficult positions for safety um, professionals when the operation pays their bills, uh, they have a target and they seem to be part of that really bigger picture for the operation. And when they need to say no or stop, they are seen to be not the team player. Mm. So I think that is really difficult when you're sat um, when you're sat right in the operational pot and then saying no is also saying no to your boss who needs their job doing. There needs to be some independence for me. Um, I've seen it sat in a couple of places. The last two roles that I've sat in, it's sat under general counsel because they have a complete ability to understand liability, law, risk in a different way. Um, I've seen it sat under assurance before, which is they they understand the checking part and the getting out in the field part. That's been quite successful. Um, so I think I don't really think there's any perfect place, really. I think it's mm. all down to your business culture and where it offers real autonomy. And I think sometimes it's the nature of the boss that it sits under. Yeah. You need to be in to somebody that will sit at the board no matter what the pressure and say, this is unsafe and, and we really shouldn't be doing this. We need somebody that can speak out. So I think you can, you know, you can go into the operation if you want, if you know that that MD or that part of the business has a total ability to call it out at board level, defend the call, or you can go into a really logical place like legal or assurance or risk. But if the person at the top of that ladder will not sit at board and back you, it's destined for disaster anyway. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I think it is good to, to to like you've added that caveat at the end. And I think that's a good caveat. Like ultimately, wherever it sits in the organisation, you might have made it work. And that's cool. Like, well yeah. done you. Um, you know, so there is kind of no one size fits all. I will kind of echo what you said. In my experience, I've worked for a lot of companies that have had it under operations. Mm-hmm. And I think that does two things. It creates the conflicts which you've said. Uh, and it also communicates to everyone who's not in operations that safety is not important to them because they're not in operations. So I'm like, yeah. my my kind of scope as my role is a bit weird. If I'm in or if I'm in operations, does that mean I don't do anything else? Like a head office where they're all shared services, for example. Um, mm. So yeah, I think I think operations is always I've always struggled with it sitting under operations. Interestingly, in the safety sucks book by Sam uh, Goodman the hop nerd is um I think that's such a long name like I feel like if he gets remarried they should use that full name do you Sam Goodman the hop nerd take <laughs> <laughs> um in his book he he goes in on on safety sitting under HR and says it should never be like that because he sees HR as the the people that do the disciplining and stuff like that. And fundamentally, if you're trying to be more of a learning, uh, understanding, empathetic safety professional, then if you're in the same department that does the discipline and you can't do that, 
and then when, I think we read that and that was our first Project Malitian book club, but we read that. So it was a bit before you joined us in the community. And and actually there was, it was interesting, there was a bit of a conversation around that where some, you know, disagreed with that and said, I've seen it work. And then some were like, oh, HR of the devil, blah, blah, blah. So it, it, it's interesting that ultimately I do think that it can, you can make it work wherever. And it does depend on the leader, I think. I think the really interesting thing about this is is um, there are, I think, some places that it would be fundamentally. I want to try not to be inflammatory. I, I think HR would be a bad call, no. um, purely because of the t- like you say the types of things that they they do when you're mm. trying to in in culture, when you are trying to navigate open conversation, uh, and you are trying to navigate trust. And you're going to hear things that are not by the book because you need to learn them to create the change. When you are sat, whoever you are sat under, you have to understand that casts a shadow. It casts a shadow of your purpose. It casts a shadow of what the organization consider you to be. Mm. And the same organization that handle grievances, disciplinary, dismissal, contract negotiation are the same ones that are going to come in and ask you how you really do your job. Yeah, Be honest with us. You're, not going to happen, is it? Going, no. <laughs> and also, I think the other really interesting thing about your question is, for me, organisations that have safety plugged directly into the CEO that sits on the board, that says something really massive to me, which is yeah. the CEO is sat there going, of course you report to me. I want to know what's going on. I want to know who's hurt. Yeah. I want to know what we're doing wrong, what we're doing right, and I want to know how we're improving it. So I think there's... Every wherever you plug that in, a you need to be open to standing behind your safety person one hundred percent, regardless of the cost, and backing up the argument because the business can always make their own decision. But backing that argument, but also wherever you plug it in, cast a shadow of how your safety people will be perceived and how important you think safety is. Can you imagine if you employed a director of safety and they said, right, um, you're going to plug into um, Oh, I can't even think you're going to plug into sort of an area manager. Um, the way that you get a message to the board is there's like seven rungs of management all the way up. So you've got lots of things to go. Well, is that, is that what, what you think looking after your people is that I have to go through seven? Where is my most direct line to tell you how important a this remit is, but B who's hurt and how we're going to make that better. Um, I think where you plug it in and what level you plug it in tells a lot about your organization's view of safety. Yeah. And it'd be those same organizations that have to go through 10 to 15 ring, rungs of, of management level to get to the board that say safety is our first priority, which is all. Oh, yeah. Bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. But you already know, right? Yeah. You literally, you could go into an organization and say, hey, where's your safety team? And then you could ask a couple of questions, right? Where do you plug in? Mm. What level do you plug in at? And how often do you get a message to the board? Mm. Probably tells you quite a lot already. Tell you everything you need to know. Yeah. I mean, and that yeah. was actually going to be my next question. Should should we report directly into the CEO? Which I, I think you've already nailed. And I and I think if you're I, I don't necessarily I'm not overly against um it not being a safety role, like a health and safety director on the board. I but if but I, but I do think it needs to have a direct connection to the board. Yeah. Uh, how if you're a big massive company, uh, I quite like the idea of having like a risk department that that kind of manages those 
all aspects of rest, like um, yeah. which is, but that that very much my way of thinking, and I think that works for me. It might not work yeah. for everybody, but for mm-hmm. me, I think safety and health is just one aspect of risk. I think you've got corporate social responsibility because doing data bribery, all of those things that are all yeah. risk, and I think they're very they're very unique risks. And I think having if you and this this only obviously this model only obviously applies really to. A big organization i think the mindset applies to a smaller organization but this the structure obviously only applies to a big organization mm. if you've got that kind of that level of you've got a mixed bag of like specialists and generalists within that risk organization i, I see that only as a benefit really for me and then i think a board would be more um a board wouldn't be so reactive if you said, can we create a director of risk as they might mm-hmm. be if you said, can we create a director of safety? Um, because I think that doesn't have less of a perception, a preconception to it, and that people are like, health and safety on the board. Oh, come on. Oh, that's not going to just going to have this, this goody two shoes on the board. But if we had a director of risk that could look at this a bit more holistically, then maybe holistically. Yeah. yeah, they're a bit more inclined to say, yeah, actually, I would I would welcome a person like that on the board. Um, that That's kind that feel, of my mindset. That feels like the evolution, I think, as well, to be really looking at this as a risk to the business, along with all your other legal business, CSR environment, all these other things that are a risk. I think that's a wonderful evolution. And I think the the time with the board thing is really interesting. I, I, I know from managing having managed quite big teams that you don't have time to for everyone to plug into you Mm. it doesn't mean you don't care about the output but it is about the exposure to their output and how often you make room for that um and i think the really lovely thing about where i am now is um we what what do we what do they call it my boss who works for the CEO has a one-to-one, but it's a group one-to-one. So we, all his DRs go in and we have like a six-to-one. And, you know, the first thing that was on his mind is, tell me what's going on in the safety space. You know, Mm. you've been here X amount of months, what's going on? And I just think, great. PLC board paper that goes in that's got safety all over it. I am the one that presents that message with obviously the right-hand man, which is my boss. Um, and I just think, you know what, I don't plug directly into the board, don't drop, plug directly into the CEO, but they're making time for the exposure. They're making time yeah. for the message so um, for sure. But I, I love that. I, I, I've actually posed that a couple of times at different places about that holistic risk piece, mm. um, because it is just risk to people. You've got risk to p- people, risk to business, risk to finance, you know, risk to environment. Mm. Put it together, have one major amazing direction on that piece yeah. um, and drive reduction across the lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's kind of the the sort of there's two jobs that I think would be the most perfect jobs in the world for me. And that is like chief risk officer yeah. looking at all of that or chief ethical officer. So just looking after everything mm-hmm. ethics, which is like DNI, yeah. safety harm environment all that stuff mm. but i think still bringing those risk pieces together so i'm 100 I'm with you how beautiful would a board be if it's like chief executive officer chief operating officer chief financial officer chief ethical officer or ethics officer that would be beautiful it's my dream it's that, it's- that's my my dream job i've made it up it doesn't exist i, I like I have- that I think that yeah. should be, I think that should be in every serious brand. I like chief ethics officer, like, yeah, that's beautiful. And then chief risk officer, fucking love that. Love that. Yeah. I, 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 
you know, head of HR probably sits on there as well. I don't know what you call them, chief people officer. I'm not sure. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not a fan of calling HR people like the head of people because I think that it, it, for me it seems like it's a really what it's a, it's like. And and again, this feels like I'm towering HR with a brush. And I've never worked in HR, and I've worked with some amazing HR professionals. I work very closely now with with a HR professional that gets it. Like there, she's so good. But ultimately, her job also includes that disciplinary side of things. So I'm yeah. like, if you're going to call me chief people officer and I'm actually head of HR, I feel like you're still just putting glitter on a turd. Like I've still got to do those really nasty. <laughs> I've still got to do those really nasty jobs. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, but you know what? what? Like so do me. we. Can you imagine all the the discovery that we have to go through? Even if you you use things like um, the fairness decision trees, when we do a proper investigation where something's really gone wrong, sometimes that can be a really mm. icky piece of work. There is some serious accountable things that we need to be accountable for. People need to take accountability for. Um, I think there's not one part of the business that doesn't have to deliver a crappy message. That some people have bigger connotations. True. Um, Very true. Yeah. But, yeah. But chief, that's that's my dream job. One day, I will work for an organisation and say I love all this stuff, and that's the you know hire for will, not for skill, right? I can do safety blindfolded. I've done it for a very long time. I bloody love it. I love people. That's why I love safety, and that's the reason why I love that whole ethics piece. So I, I mean, that's that's a job that I swear to God, one day I will create for myself. Chief ethical officer. I could see brands going for that, you know, like a mm. company like Netflix. I reckon they'd snap that up. Yeah. You read their well, coined memo, here that's first. Right up there. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I'll let Ruth know. Let yeah, Chris, let Ruth Chris know. Chris was looking for a job. All right. What's she looking for? No, no, no. Sorry, I said that wrong. She designed her own job. I've designed yeah. my own job. Sure. <laughs> okay, so we've started at the top, right? We've established that it should be connected to the board, ideally. Um, then how how are you how are you seeing the structure of the team as we go down the levels now then i think the the really interesting thing i wanted to dive into here is we've we're coming from an era where we used to stamp diploma or certificate on every single um job description we put it out we get the real traditionalists in um, and all the technical experts, right? People that were really technical, they could do all these, you know, use the Mac tool that was so complicated, it blows my brains out. Yeah. Um, the I avoid the Mac tool like a fucking but, Who doesn't? I don't know a single person's <laughs> like, do you know my favourite tool ever? It's the Mac tool. I've, um, I've come across this guy once who's like, yeah, I like all six tools, or I think there's five actually. It's the art tool, the Mac tool, and there's yeah. like three or four, there's like three or four others. And he was like, yeah, this is for this. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> you are that guy, aren't you? Like, you love but that he, shit. He's that technical person, right? Yes. And, and this is this is the bit that I think is, um, is crazy. Is we used to say everyone had to be a generalist and then very occasionally we'd pick a specialist depending on what sector we worked in. Yeah. I think we are really changing that vibe. And I think really essentially we really need to um that now I would much prefer to have people-centric, care-focused individuals taking up the leadership parts of my team. So people that actually care about people, people that really want to make the difference. Yeah. And where you've got key risks in your risk profile, hire your technical expert. Mm. But if you have a, a whole house that's just full of dry, paper-driven, compliance-driven individuals, what you will get is compliance. You will not get safety 
And it's they are fundamentally different things. Compliance will drive you to the halfway mark, right? Culture-wise, you'll get some people that will create really good muscle memory out of compliance. Some of them are very good with a process or procedure. You tell me one person that's at the sharp end of a risk that before they climb the pole, did the whole rip the, you know, rip the floor up. They go, tell you what, let me get the sop out. Let me just have a little have a little read to make sure I've re- really reread the risk assessment today and I really know what my controls are. And let Wait, me just what? double check. Workers that don't st- do that? What? Right? Because guess what? Oh, shit. They have a day job <laughs> and they have time pressure and they have deliverables. You have to have people that are people-centric because what you will deliver is paper. Yeah. I, I mean, I kind of... But for me, I think in, if you've got that kind of, and I think the profession needs to redesign themselves, not just within a, within a, you know, we're, we're talking about a big company that's got a lot of resource and we're, we're you know, we're talking high level. Uh, and obviously maybe yeah. we'll talk later about what that looks like in a smaller company. Um, yeah. But, but like, ultimately I, I do think you need like, gen- generalists are powerful people. Like, like, you know, everyone says like, um, what's that saying? Master of, What's the, what's the uh, Jack of all trades, master of none. Jack of all trades, master of none, right? And people stop the saying there. Yeah. But actually, the, the proper saying, cont- the, the, the original quote continues on, and it says, Jack of all trades, master of none, but often better than master of one. Very cool. So, gen- and, I, and I never knew that until, like, maybe about six months ago, and I was just like, what the fuck? Like, my whole life. And, and that was... That was nuts. And then I remember posing the conversation on, I, I did a video on this a, a while back. Like, um, I think I called it something quite provocative around like why the safety profession is doomed or whatever. And then <laughs> Dave, David, Pro, Dave, you know, I'm like the Dave, yeah. David Provan commented on it being like, um, don't, don't devalue like generalists. Generalists bring a really, really powerful um, tool uh, and a mindset and approach to the organization. And I was like, yeah, shit, that's a really good point. So like, for me, I've, I've started to imagine, and again, a lot of this has stemmed from also a conversation with Dr. Rob Long. And if you think I'm provocative, you need to read some of his blogs like shit. Like he is mega provocative, right? But ultimately he says, we're not a profession. So he says, all safety professionals, you, you're not a professional, right? Which like gets my back up because like yep. I'm working class. I was never going to be a professional in my entire life. And I've worked fucking hard to become myself a professional. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, piss Amen off, to that. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, piss off, mate. I've worked really hard to be a professional. I'm going to call myself one. But yep. when I interviewed him and I, I challenged him on it, his point was when I, well, he was like, when I think about a profession, um, I think about like the healthcare industry. And we were talking, and he said about legal and loads of other stuff. So I, I then, after a very long conversation, I put the conversation back to him and I said the question back to him and said, okay, let's say, for example, the safety profession or the risk management profession, as I would prefer to call it, was set up like this. You have general practitioners, GPs, same as we do in NHS, right? Yeah. Their job is they've got a little bit of an understanding of the kind of people side of it. They've got a good understanding of the systems kind of side of things, good understanding of the technical side of things. And then a good understanding of the compliance side of things. So across the board, they've got a good understanding of all kind of, the, of what I would think are the kind of key components of risk management, right? Yep. So people, systems, technical compliance, yep. general practitioner. Their job is to go in, identify 
issues or problems, mm-hmm. try and solve them like your GP does. Try this drug and then go away. Did the drug work? No, it didn't. Okay, let's try this. Escalate to your specialist. Didn't work. Now I'm going to refer you. Right. So I see a big company, the risk department, and they have the front line of GPs, general practitioners, general risk practitioners, whatever you call them. Behind them, I see teams of specialists. I see like human performance specialists, people that can really understand human performance and how how a company and behaviors work together and what that looks like. Kind of systems as in what I would kind of think of like resilience and looking at it from a like organizational resilience point of view. And then I'd look at technical geniuses, basically like technical geeks. So yeah. You, you need not, those. Yeah, definitely. You you percent so need them. So you need yeah. people that and it, this depends on your risk. Like you're not going to have a technical geek for everything, but if you're like, if your top five risks are working at high confined space and I don't know, maybe you do chemicals and stuff, like, you're going to have some. Then geeks. have those techs there for sure. Exactly. Yep. Right. So they're going to be a proper, probably going to be like a much smaller team. These teams are small teams, but they're specialists, like all of them. Yep. And then I see you have your compliance experts. So these are people that nail, they, they're like in the law. They know the law inside out. Those really annoying people that I, that I don't get on with very well at all. They're just yep. like, the health technique workout was written in 1974 and section 1.2, like those people, because you need yep. them. And then they get ISO 45001. They love it. They, they're in it. They get it. All that system types of accreditation and approval stuff. That's you're clocking exactly I, I think you're clocking the exact same so even at the beginning where I was just like have a whole bunch of people focus you have to have competence right I wouldn't mm, very rarely would I have would I bring somebody in and I have done in one of my previous roles that hasn't got any formal qualifications but it just is excellent uh, yeah. in that say you know didn't even know they were working in safety beforehand but they bloody were yeah. um shout out to Lee if you're listening um <laughs> and but that generalist, that top level lot of experts that look at the whole shebang and the technical people underneath aligned to your risk profile, the thing that you've nailed there is a whole load of people that love what they do, that they're into it. Yeah, exactly. And they think yeah. the, the worst team. And their personalities fit with it as well. It, absolutely. So, uh, the, you know, one of the best people that I ever um, saw working with standards is somebody that just geeked out hard about the standard and oh my god every you know could tell you every subsection every everything of the standards the worst person i've ever seen work with standards is somebody that was made to do it because someone was made redundant and did they ever keep their accreditations did they hell it was always firefighting because they hated it and i had the same with with um data you get somebody and you employ them they're a sort of generalist but you're shoehorning them into a technical area it never goes well I've done the best thing I've ever done because I think you can't do you can't do safety without having really really good data people right I am safety one two and differently and all of them mixed together is all of them and I put a job out for a data person right and had loads of people come and interview and what I did is I took a big cleanse a big sweep or scrape as they call it of data and I gave it to the people at their interview and said, I know that there's trends in this data. I'm going to give you an hour. I'm going to come back, find whatever you can, right? They knew what what was in the data, what they were looking at, what the heading was. Totally bored people that were very good, halfway through, knock on the door. Can I just go? This is quite, you know, I've done it and I don't really, 
yeah, fine. You know, have they have obviously not interested in what they can do quite naturally. So pull, pull that back up, Crystal, just a bit. Sorry. That's yeah. all right. Uh, obviously not interested in what they can do. Um, and you know who got the job? There was a young guy, James, who is still the best Legend. person I've ever known. Legend of James. Legend. Um, he didn't quite finish the task. Right. But what he did when we walked in was still, oh, my God, he was still finding stuff because as he was talking, he couldn't help but be but drilling the data mm-hmm. in real. And even though he's in the interview, like, yeah, no, I've, and I found this and this age profile and this is, oh, have you seen? And he was just there rediscovering in front of us. And me and um, who I was interviewing with Joe, we looked at each other and he's still going, oh, and did you see? And I was like, yeah, okay, <laughs> this is... He, he barely got to the lift before we were like, do you want to just tell him now or do we do wait the official 24 hours? Love that. Because he loves what he does. You don't have to be the quickest, cleanest person at what you do. If you love it, all the rest can be coached, mm. um, but you have to be into it. And this is where you get your specialists, right? People that work in ergonomics or chem or whatever. If I'm ever interviewing or going for tender, by the way, so even if I'm yeah. working with a third party, if I get a standard pitch by a third party, not interested mm. at all. If you are talking and going off on tangents because each facet is so interesting to you, I'm, I'm listening yeah. big time because the number one thing you have to have is passion. passion. And whether that's a passion for being a generalist, I'm a generalist, right? I've worked across all sectors I would say if you were going to say I was a specialist in anything, it would be people. Mm. Can't get more ge- like general than people. Um, but I am geek-tastically into people and behaviour and why. And I'm absolutely obsessed with everyone having the right to go home. Yeah. That's it. That's why I do what I do. And you go out and you get those technicals. And so I'm, I'm with you. You generalist, your GPs, and then you refer to your specialists wherever your specialists if you can't fix it so i'm with you definitely and, that, and, that, and that's the problem go on carry on carry on and i was just gonna say so where are you in terms of your for me we're going from compliance safety and you know sort of 10 years ago it was and before massively all compliance driven we're now getting to understand that people have their own thoughts and they have no. bad days and behavior is a thing yeah. um and also, so is unhappiness and fatigue and work pressure. Um, and for me, I just think this is the really big shift of this decade about moving people's thought process to just because you've got the paper doesn't mean you've fixed anything. In fact, you haven't. You've just documented a problem. Mm. Um, and so the big change in teams now and what you really need in the team is is people-focused passion Um and everything well beyond compliance. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, one hundred percent. And and, and we, 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 the 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 profession as a whole needs to understand this and and take it up. Like I, I want to see, I want to see the membership organisations turn around and say, actually, we acknowledge that there's a difference between a generalist and the specialist. And yeah. we need both. And at the moment, mm-hmm. we're just selling. Gem- everyone's a generalist. Everyone's a general. And I remember doing my NTIQ not that long ago, like a, a year ago. And I was stubborn and said, "I ain't doing that." Uh, that I know what I'm talking about. I don't need no fucking magic to tell me. I'm, I'm <laughs> so and then I realised, shit, no one's going to interview me. No, I know, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. They realised, shit, no one's interviewing me because I haven't got that badge. 
quick yeah. get the credit card <laughs> so <laughs> do, do the ncrq and i'm going through the last section don't get me wrong i I don't think any, so here's my, here's my kind of bias. Uh, I have a bias when talking about the qualifications, because I don't think any of our existing qualifications are fit for purpose um, at the moment as they are. However, I will say that I have relished the, the change in styles that we've seen of late with NCRQ coming out and then forcing um, Nibosh to kind of re-examine re, re where they are and then COVID forcing them even more to re-examine how they do it. Um, mm. So so I've relished that. That's nice to see. So in that context, I do think NCRQ is a very good qualification. However, it's still delivered more of the same, um, which, which, which we didn't need in my opinion. Anyway, off my soapbox now. I remember doing um, number one, which is like the basic stuff. Book two, which was like, all civil law like it was all like civil law and um, precedents and case studies and stuff and i fucking hate law right but i actually loved that middle book like it was yeah. wicked i yeah. really loved going through all these case studies and i was like this is this is interesting af right so i'm like shit maybe i am a generalist like in this process i thought yeah i i, I Maybe if I just did like, don't get me wrong, I love the human performance stuff, right? That's I love the behavioral stuff. And I was in on that. And I was like, once once I've done the NCIQ, I'm gonna get myself up to like, you know, a good, a good, like a master's in in HP or a master's in behavioral um economics or something like that. And that's where I'm gonna get to and just specialize. And then in that process, I was like, oh, maybe I don't want to specialize actually, because I love this stuff. Um yeah. But then I get to the third book, right? And it's like further, it's called Further Hazards or whatever. I can't remember, right? And it's basically a couple of pages. And depending on the risk of the of the, the type of risk and how risky that is, you get more pages or less pages. And I'm going through it. And bear in mind, I'd actually specialized prior to this in fire safety for a, a fair chunk of time in the NHS and housing. So I'd actually become a bit of a fire geek. Um, and I got to the last bit and they did like four or five pages on fire. And I'm mm -hmm. like, nowhere near enough. No, nowhere near enough. Like, I'm like, did, did nobody watch the news like four or five years ago when I was doing this? Like, this shit kills people. It was nowhere yeah. near enough. And and I'm like, okay, here now we've got a problem because we're, we're trying to give people this generalist overview of stuff that kills people and it's not enough. And there's no... There's no um, expertise behind them to support them. So, and, and that's where the issue is. So if I was doing the NCRQ, but I knew that I could go and employ a fire consultant, a fire engineer tomorrow, which you can for fire, right? I can get a specialist, I'm fine. So it was a little bit like, yeah, okay, but how many people know that you can actually go and employ a proper fire consultant? I, I, I probably think not too many. And then I think mm. as you start to go through the other stuff, it gets less and less. So you start to see more ergonomic specialists from a DSE point of view and working in the office. That's nice to see. But if you go and type in like health and safety consultant specialist working at height, you just get general consultant. Yeah, of course you do. And I'm really struggling of late, actually recently to find a specialist working at height specialist, like a real specialist in working at height. Whenever I do find them, then they're normally like prod, they're closely related to the product. So they know the product and stuff. But I want someone that, that can actually help me help our members manage 
working at height as a holistic kind of risk. So I'm not, I'm not kind of supporting, maybe someone's listening to this, maybe like, what are you on about? There's loads of specialist consultants, but not as rife as what we need them to be. There's not, there's not yeah. enough of them. Do you know what I mean? Like it should be, it should just be known. Like, you know, you go on LinkedIn and you're like, oh yeah, I know at least six working at height specialists, four chemical specialists, four DSE ergonomic specialists, five this, five that. And you could just go on because that's how the industry is. I guarantee the fucking GP could turn around and go, yeah, I'll tell you about six people that can give you an x-ray, four people that can replace your leg, five people that can cure cancer. They'll know because they work with them every day. We don't have that. And I think that's a massive gap, a massive gap. I always thought it was quite interesting that there was never any, years and years ago, IOSH brought out the register, didn't they? Like the approved register for consultants or whatever. And I thought that was going to be the answer. I thought that was going to be like the Bible. If you're running a team and you need a specialism and you don't have it naturally in your team, especially if it's a newly arising one that you're not anticipating it being a solid part of your risk profile going forward you need you need somebody in the minute to come and help you yeah. i really thought that was going to be it but like there is a virus no... a virus expert yeah like you know I mean? we needed them about a year ago didn't we two years ago yeah. absolutely so i i do think that we could definitely do better at making just yeah centralizing a really good solid list of competent specialists um i think the the whole comment about ncrq I'm, I will just something that you said that resonated massively with me, which is I come from working class background. Um, I got sort of standard or slightly below standard grades at school and I went straight to work as a cleaner in Domino's Pizza. The fact that however many years later I was then studying the law, the, the law section of the Niebosch diploma mm. and loving it, um, I thought was both my favorite moment in life really pre-Emily um was like I'm actually studying law and this is amazing but I think what makes it amazing is both you and I weren't from from what I know of you weren't doing it to um well I was doing it because I needed it to that that's what's expected of a safety professional but this is what's expected. You're expected to have a diploma or now the NCRQ. I did mine like 10 years ago before the NCRQ was a real thing. Um, and the reason that that made so much sense to me is because it put life in legislation for me. Like mm. learning the case law, learning all the stuff that sits behind the dry pieces of legislation. I don't really talk to people about legislation. I talk to people about cases. Did you know? Yeah. And if someone mentions a piece of, a piece of legislation, I try... I'm trying to blow not into the microphone. Um, I try to talk to them. You got it yeah, lovely. Thank you. Um, I try to talk to them about the case law. The person that had to die or be mauled to create that. I have that conversation, which is, mm. oh, God, this piece of legislation is so boring. And I always say this. Do you know how many people have to die before we change the law? And everyone's like, what? It's like, well, if one person died of one type of accident, people will go, that's a tragedy. Two people die over a couple of years of that one, it's a tragedy. Do you know how many people have to die for us to design a white paper, to send it through the house, to do all that sort of stuff and create a piece of legislation? When you see this book with this year on and all the work behind it, no plenty of people had their life changed to have this book here. Yeah. And it's a different thing for me. I loved the law because I loved learning how it got there, 
what was the process and when I read it for me it's about protecting this piece of legislation protects people and it gives me a tool to talk to the organization about protecting you know we are benefiting from people that have lost their lives we're benefiting from a judge seeing this time and time again and saying screw this this is not happening anymore we're now going to make it illegal to do this that's how big a deal this is that's how big a deal this risk is so actually you know i'm here to bring that message home but mine is as usual even in legislation it's people-centric how many people have to die before you change the law Mm. um so i think it's it's magic i actually trained to deliver nebosh training i don't know if you know this because you told me yeah because it was being delivered in an inhumane way. It was being delivered. We were being trained to pass exams. Yeah. The diploma, you cannot do that. Back in the day, there was no such thing as open book. Um, you had to just know it verbatim. But even the way all that was delivered, it was so non-human centric. And yet yeah. the profession is meant to be there for people. Yeah. So I literally went while pregnant, the whole nine months I was pregnant, I went to college at the weekends, worked like full-time job and weekend studied to be a wow. teacher. Um, or like a, an adult learning teacher so that one day I could teach adults not just the diploma not just how to pass an exam but what it means mm. because I'm, I'm with you it missed something like the information I found amazing and I love the study but there's something missing something about people that's missing well I also think that what's missing for like yeah we've got that that the gap in the profession i think but also what's missing in the actual way that we train safety professionals is is that facilitation skill like it's kind of maybe less so now but definitely when i did my knee boss general because i remember thinking it um that i knew better because i'd been on a two-week course i know better than bob the welder do you mean even though yeah. Bob the world has been welding for like 20 years and I've done a two week course and I think yep. I know better. So yep. what I think we do miss even now that, like, you know, everyone's, everyone's fucking talking about it. And no matter what webinar I go on or keynotes, you know, recruiters, everyone's talking about it. soft skills are so important, soft skills, this soft skills. And it always comes with a shitty, annoying caveat that like, don't get me wrong. Technical skills are really important. Yes, they are. We're not, I'm not, I'm not fucking saying that. Because we're doing the technical skills. We don't have to talk about that because we're doing it, right? Yeah. So just leave them for a moment. I don't want to hear your shitty caveat. What are you doing to enable yeah. people to have the soft skills? Because at the moment, I'm going to employ someone with a Nebosh general, and I'm going to have to coach them with the soft skills. So they can't they can't get going straight away. They've only got those, those technical skills. Now, someone might go, you can't teach soft skills. You can't teach. No, maybe you can't. But what you can do is you can put in a book the power of, of kind of empathy, the power of appreciative inquiry and what you can what you can benefit from that. So why coming at this from a I know better point of view doesn't work. Yeah. And, and that's a Absolutely. big letdown. And I think even if, even though you've got Ayush and the like have put it in their in their kind of their framework, but it's like, yeah, but, but what are you creating to actually give people that? What are you doing to actually tell people that this is really important and you're not yeah. going to do a good job until you do that, until you yep. have that? No, absolutely. Do you know what? While you were talking, what, do you know what I was thinking about um, the topic of team and the safety team? I was thinking about Bob the welder and that he's part of the safety team. Mm. 
every single person I, I've never been out ever with an engineer in 19 years and them say what am I trying to say the person that knows that job better than anyone and the risks entrenched in that job is Bob the welder it's is Bob the engineer the climbing the pole right yeah and actually the best thing I ever did in terms of a safety campaign was Nick Simon Senek's one by one policing and turn it into a safety campaign mm. in my last job and I put on social media internally today is one by one safety day right and we only have to change one thing one thing just today and we will have changed 40,000 things what's your one by one safety thing because you already do it and I know you do mm. the we had f- 5,000 posts. Some of them were videos of multiple people in that team. So we're talking probably seven, 8,000 people involved in one by one safety, right? All telling me what they already do. They didn't need me out there telling them, I don't know how to weld. I don't know how to climb a pole. I don't know how to rip a pole out of the floor or dig a hole, right? Give it a good go. But I'm not the expert. They told me how they keep their job safe. They told me. Your safety team is a small bubble of people that are supposed to really appreciate what is going on in real time. Mm. And as stuff starts to go wrong, we're supposed to catch it. We're supposed to dig in and understand it. And we're supposed to help fix it so everybody gets home. We are not a bubble of people to tell an organization what to do. We are there to understand and help resolve. Now, I don't know about you. But any team that's geared up to do that reactively, so stuff's already gone wrong, is on a hiding to nothing. Mm-hmm. And a team that is already sitting there with a whole bunch of people that say, I know best, and I'm just going to tell you, you know, I'll write my report and send that out and let you know what's happening, but nothing's, there's no resolve at the end. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. It's, it's just wasting paper. Yeah. Don't tell me what's happening. Tell me what's going to happen. Get in front of it. And, and I think um, we, we fell down so much when we started seeing the safety profession as the safety experts like the second we do that like i yeah. think everyone's like oh yeah this is james on our call that's a safety expert and i'm like no I'm, I'm if i mean don't get me wrong i don't interrupt them every time normally i just roll my eyes but if if it's suitable i will say i'm not an expert um oh. because i think that when we, we we talk about deference to expertise and high reliability organizations talk about that a lot of deference to expertise that expertise is is the front line they're yeah. the experts. Yes. It's my job to facilitate that expertise. Now, expertise might also be an actual expert, as in the e.g., a, a consultant geek who's a who's a fucking right on expert for that thing. It yeah. could also be talking to a, a lawyer, right? But but my job as a generalist is to interpret the legislation, interpret what the HSC or anyone else might say as this is potentially best practice, and then talk to the expert, the doer of the job, and say. Yeah. What do we think? The law says this. Are we doing it? The best practice says to do this. Are we doing it? Could we do this better? What do you think? Yeah. That, do you know what? 100%. And I think, there, do you know, there was a time, there was something that happened when I was when I was studying. And at the time, I felt really embarrassed, right? And then I realized when you get, when you've been doing it for a very long time, this is exactly how you're meant to feel. I was studying my diploma and I'd been studying like, you know, specific hazards or whatever it was. And I'd been doing a bit on, to touch around the edges on asbestos. 
Right. Now, my dad is an electrical engineer. Yeah. Right. He's in boiler rooms every single day. He did asbestos every single day. And he went, right, girly, go on then. All the different types of asbestos, how dangerous they are. What's the worst one? How do you protect? Like, go on, you know, impress me. And I was like, uh, and then everything, A, went out of my head because I've been put on the spot. But B, I thought, oh, you're an expert. Now, it doesn't say asbestos safety expert, does it? No, he's an electrical engineer, but he works that stuff all day. And then I said to him, Pops, I've gone, other than being able, literally, this is, I was like, uh, a tile? Uh, and it just, that's the only thing I could come up with. And he was like, oh, anyway, he then runs through all this stuff. Yeah. He knows. He told me the hazard. He told me how severe the, the consequence was. He told me the control. He told me everything. Is there safety anywhere in that man's title? Nah. Did he know that risk backwards? Of course he did, because he is the expert, to your point. Exactly. Exactly. So let, let's try and bring this back to structure, because we both went down a little rabbit hole there, ranting about the profession. I think, so I, I think, I think we've been touching it. A safety team. I think what we've been doing is really opening this up to um, the fact that don't be arrogant and think that your bubble in the middle that has the safety title is your safety team, right? Every single member of your organization casts a shadow, holds a responsibility for safety. You as an organization are a team of people doing safety. Mm. In terms of your technical experts in in the center, the people that are there to see and get in front of trends when you can't, when you're that close to the, to the, um, to the risk is us. And in terms of structure, I think we discussed where do we think we should plug in? Um, And I think operation is a mistake. HR is a mistake. Um, But those sort of other risk based pockets of activity in the organization, fine. The most important thing really is that the person sat at the top of that tree has the ability to stand forth in really tricky situations and say the truth. Mm. That's the main thing for me. Um, and then in terms of structure, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think competence is really important. And I'm, you know, I'm going to have to be really real. If you put a CV on my desk, I'm going to think about what you've done before now. I'm going to think about your competency. And that's really important for a generalist, right? For that top tier, what's going on? I've been around the block a few times. I can see risk coming. I can see a trend. I know how to find stuff. I get out characteristics of those people and that structure is different. I get out and about. Um, I know the the importance of proactive investigating work, all that great. And then my risk profile. What are your key risks in your organizations? Do you have foundries, right? Do you have massive um, vehicles that go and yank poles out of the floor? Do you have massive cutting machines? You should probably have technical experts aligned to your risks, but also the trends that are going massively off piece. If you've got a problem in road, you should probably have a road risk person sat on your team dedicated to that. Um, So I'm I'm with you. It almost works like the medical profession. It's a care profession, right? We'll take care of it with with general advice and general guidance. And then where we're having real problems, we'll get the experts in. Uh, That is exactly what Rob says. Rob, Dr. Rob Long says it's a care profession. Um, it is and yeah and i didn't mention that so it's funny that you both came to the same conclusion without twice well, I, I said a long time ago i'd love to be the director of care because that's genuinely what i feel i do 
And then my friend who works in social care was like, well, you have heads of care that work with in the in the sort of children social housing sector and stuff that are called care. So it would be confusing. But if you ever ask me what I do, I take care of people. That's me. But yeah, yeah, we are a care profession. And we, I think sometimes we forget that we can be compliance if you drive us there. But what we really are and what we really should be is the, the sort of heartbeat of the organization in terms of caring for everybody. One last thing I think it would be good to spend a couple of minutes on. Uh, yep. Assuming that you don't have those specialists and you're, you're going for the bog standard um, safety team, e.g. Yep. head of safety, mm-hmm. maybe a manager and then a load of, load of people. What are you calling your safety team? What are their names? And does it matter? So like business partners, coach, advisors, officers, whatever. Um, what are you calling them? I I wouldn't even think about what they were called. I would think about the if you've got, if you've literally got in your budget a starting a new organization, small organization, a small pocket of cash, and you think I know I need safety people, I would say one thing. You need a strategist. 100% to head up that function, not somebody that's just concentrating on the specific risk, but somebody that's going to take you forward and change with your organization. Mm. So you need a safety strategist at the top. And then underneath that, and it doesn't matter how you structure it as far as I'm concerned, you need a couple of things. You need 100% the reactive view, right? So somebody that's going to go out, that's going to chunk that, those, that data down, go find it, is massively interested. You need someone to resolve what they find. Right. So what's your change group? What's your action group? And then you need somebody that's proactive. So that could be your assurance, right? Whatever that is, go out, proactive investigation, typical assurance, audit, whatever you want to call it. You yeah, need proactive, reactive, like proactive reaction, proactive, reactive, and resolve. They're the three things you need to make sure happen in your team. And you can call them whatever you want. And they can have whatever specialism wrapped into that. But are you looking reactively and taking care of that and learning? Are you dealing with it proactively and getting out in front of your work and seeing what comes and looking out to other organizations? And are you resolving what you find? Mm. That would be me. I like that. So for you, it doesn't matter if you call it like safety officer, not bothered. No, safety coach. I mean, there's some really great things, safety officer, safety coach, safety leader. Lots of people do different things. My my thing is, no. And actually, it's dictated by um the essentially the dna of your organization if you're working in an industry that is fairly command and control they might react to certain titles better um because also you need to make sure those people can communicate on a level with the people they have to so it the the job title should just be appropriate for your culture and the type of industry that you're in yeah the main thing is what they're doing yeah exactly that was going to be what's going to finish on there like i have um work for an organization where I've been called a business partner and a business partner for me would be a more forward thinking title. Um, Mm -hmm. It implies that you're partnering the business and, and helping them. You're more of a facilitator, not an officer, which to me implies command and control. Right. Interestingly, the job was right up there in officer because that was the culture of how they approached safety. Like it was so, we were called business partners, but we weren't, we were auditors. That's what we were, yeah. we were auditors. We didn't really do any business partnering whatsoever. We we only went to site to audit them. It was, it was fucking horrible if I'm honest, but <laughs> it was, um, you know, it was just, it, it wasn't that. So ultimately I am not a fan of calling them officers, if I'm honest, however, it's funny that I'm not a fan of calling them officers on the shop floor, but I've kind of 
just fine with the the board being called officers, even though it's the same word. So I've kind of got a bias there, obviously, that I haven't really worked out. I've only just kind of realized that in this conversation, which is strange, which is strange. Um, But like, I'm kind of now sitting here reflecting on why why am I okay with office being on the board, but not on the floor? Is it because of the direct connection to the workforce or, or what? I'm really not sure. But ultimately, it really doesn't matter if I'm the safety officer that might give me an indication that the company is a bit more command and control. But if I'm there and the guy's not the guy or girl is not that, that way inclined, man, I don't give a crap what you're called. Yeah. Um, Amen. I really don't. I'm, I'm not against advisor. I quite like the title advisor. I thought it worked. Like I'm here as I'm the safety advisor. I come here to give you safety advice. I think that works quite well. Yeah. I mean, if you really had time on your hands and you were building it from scratch, the beautiful thing is you could go out to your workforce and say, this is the purpose of the role, mm. right? We are here to look after you. What do you think the role should be called? Yeah, yeah. And I get that, like, words create worlds and stuff like that, and I understand that. But, like, I'm also a bit like picture paints a thousand words. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a, the, your your actions speak louder than words, Um and, and, and I just think like, you can call me an officer all you like, but like if I go into the shop floor and I'm partnering with them, my title doesn't matter. I, no, I, I doesn't. don't know. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. But yeah, if it's I, going really well, you'll never ever think about the title anyway. Someone will be able to walk into an office and say, James, I've got an issue. Do you want to come have a look? Exactly. But I do think the most important thing, which, which really we, we covered this actually really, really comprehensively in, um, well, actually, we didn't cover it comprehensively. We, we we questioned it a few times. In the first quarterly coalition, we had Laura, and she, me and Laura kind of jointly interviewed a load of uh, business leaders. They were not safety mm-hmm. professionals. They were like CEOs and MDs and stuff like that. And I asked them all, roughly, the same question. Why is safety struggling to get on the board? Like, what do we need to do to be on the board? Mm. And kind of didn't really get a good answer out of most of them. And I think one of them, I think one of them had it in reporting into the top of the organization. And ironically, it was a trade association. And the first time I have ever been in a role um, where safety is reported direct into the top of the organization is my role right now at a trade association. So I thought, how weird is that? That's how very funny strange. Is that? What mm. does that say about the culture of trade organizations? That's interesting. That is interesting, yeah, yeah, because it is, it is, it is, and I've only just realised mm-hmm. that as well. But ultimately, I think Crystal, that is the most important thing: some form of risk management that's connected to safety. Be that head of safety, head of risk, whatever. I think yep. that safety needs to have a direct connection to the top of the organisation. Absolutely, of course it does. Yeah, that and that, that's a couple we said at the beginning, didn't we? Mm. That's um, it casts where you plug it in and who you have sat there casts the shadow about how you value it so 100 percent. yeah i think that is the most important thing for me and interestingly it's a shame that we didn't we didn't get onto this and we're going to run out of time because unfortunately i'm i'm back to back today but it's interesting that in his book um talking where he talks about uh culture carsten actually says a lot of the time structure is what we're talking about when we talk about culture and, and that the structure of an organization is kind of like a big factor within the organization's culture, which I'd, mm. I've never really thought about before. But like it is it, when you think about it, you're like, oh, yeah, it does. And we've we've kind of touched on that today. Like 
the culture and the impact of the safety team might be affected as to where they report into. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. Amazing. Well, Crystal, I've had a really good chat with you these last three episodes. We've both been really busy, so we tried to cram these in. So they're probably some of the shorter episodes I've ever done, which is a shame because I could talk to you forever. Um, But thank you very much for coming on. Um, Do you want to give a shout out to your your podcast still going? You still doing your podcast? Uh, Yes, I did a couple of episodes and I need to get back on it, actually. Um, Somebody gave me some Yeah, so... um, so I've got a podcast on Anchor called um, Why Should I Care? Um, and then just going through sort of typical work-related or ethical things, um, just discussing whether we should care about them at all or whether we're made to care about them. And then um, if they want to see more about me in general, I've got a website, www.crystaldanbury.co.uk. I did not know that. There you go. Thanks to that will be in the description, that's for sure. <laughs> so uh but yeah that's me in a nutshell but if anyone ever wants to get hold of me as i said on the last couple linkedin is a, a really good place i'm quite active on there and they can talk to you every wednesday or friday at project millennium can't they Christian? of course they can course i they wax can. lyrical about project millennium so 100 if you want a really forward-thinking organization or community i call it a safety community to join yeah. troubleshoot see how we feel really progress things and to change your mind or alter your mind or progress your thinking in safety, then Project Miletium is the place. I don't even need to do the advert at the end of the episode now. Thank you very much, Crystal. <laughs> Thank you very much. And lovely to join you, James. Thanks for the time. Okay, peeps. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Crystal. Unfortunately, that is the last one of the quarterly co-host. And it's the last quarterly co-host of this year. I'd like you to do me a favour and just... DM me on LinkedIn or email me, james at rebrandingsafety.com and let me know whether you're enjoying the quarterly co-host segment. It's something we introduced in Q2 this year. Um, I've actually really enjoyed it. The diversity of of the style has been really good. Um, I'd like to get some more, obviously, um, different styles and stuff and maybe get a couple more where we interview uh, people like we did with Laura as well. But ultimately, I've quite enjoyed it. We've got some lined up for the new year, but ultimately we do this for you. So let me know what you think. Thank you very much, Paradigm Human Performance, for sponsoring uh, Rebranding Safety Podcast and YouTube channel. Um, Don't forget to check them out. Check out the webinar. Everything's linked in the description below. If you're looking for some more help and support, go check out rebrandingsafety.com. There's lots of stuff we can do, and we've just added our consultancy service on there as well, so go check that out. And if you're looking for some support for personal development, then you can come and join Project Miletium, which is a mastermind community for health, safety, and risk professionals. But ultimately, thank you very much for listening and watching this podcast. I'll catch you next week. Safe. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson.